Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Just in time for Halloween, a suite of spooky tales to make your skin crawl. He takes his other hand, grips a demon face button centered in his wrist. Then he undoes the button as if loosening a collar. Tales of the Supernatural. It's only then that I realized that the figure I had outlined, the man who was still looking at me, was only partially solid, although against the black background of the darkened office and warehouse, he'd appeared complete. And ghost stories galore. To this day, I still don't know what it is. It's not human, we know that, and it's not aggressive. So it was just something we learned to live with. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Happy Halloween. It's the season for gathering around fires and telling spooky stories. And one of my favorite spooky storytellers is Mike Allen. Mike is an award-winning science fiction, fantasy, and horror writer based in Roanoke, Virginia. I asked Mike to read an excerpt from one of his stories. I am reading a passage from what is probably my most celebrated short story, The Button Bin which was, once upon a time, a Nebula Award finalist. In this passage, the protagonist is confronting at gunpoint the proprietor of an eerie fabric shop who has confessed involvement in the disappearance of a beloved relative. He leans toward the button bin. His arm disappears to the elbow, and he shudders like he's plunged it in ice. You don't hear the noise you expect, the clattering hiss of beads displaced. Instead, a release of air, like a lover's soft exhalation. His arm comes out slowly as if he's having to extract it from tar. He holds his hand up in front of his face, looks at you between his fingers. Some of the buttons have adhered to his skin. There's a cat's eye centered in the palm of his hand, gold suns in the crooks of his knuckles, black diamonds tracking in rows down his forearm. It's as if they lined up along invisible seams in his skin. He takes his other hand, grips a demon face button centered in his wrist. Then he undoes the button as if loosening a collar. A vertical seam in his wrist suddenly gapes like a new eye opening. What you should see through that opening is blood and meat and tendons, but instead there's something in there that wavers like heat shimmer, flutters like a moth. Stop it, you say, but he's unbuttoning his wrist, the skin parting like a cuff, something pale and gleaming and alive revealed underneath. He says, do you see her yet? Besides writing, Mike Allen also runs Mythic Delirium. It started as a sci-fi poetry zine. Now it's a publishing imprint that puts out books. I visited Mike to speak with him about his work. I started by asking how he first got into fantasy and horror as a child in Wise, Virginia. In third grade... My teacher read to us The Raven and the Tall Tale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe for Halloween, and most of the kids in the class reacted in a way that was kind of like, ha-ha, that was cool, whereas I, being kind of a sheltered child, had no real way at that time, I suppose, to process the darkness that was in those stories, and they really, really deeply freaked me out in a way that reverberated for years. I had night terror after night terror. So that was one thing. Another thing would have been that around that same time, the animated adaptation of The Hobbit came out on television, and I watched it and thought it was really, really cool. And my father, who was a really hardcore fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, watched it with me. And when he heard me talking about how much I liked it, 
basically said, bah, that was terrible. It's nowhere near as good as the book and made me read The Hobbit. And so, you know, that started me reading The Lord of the Rings and uh, books that were kind of connected, like The Chronicles of Narnia by Tolkien's buddy C.S. Lewis. And from there, expanding to many more works of fantasy. And in Wise, there was, I believe still is, a small public library that to me became a, a sort of castle of adventure. I, I think of it as because I recall walking to it up this, you know, up, up this very steep hill and going, exploring, looking through all, for all these different fantasy and science fiction and eventually even horror books that I essentially learned about through my own research. What led you to actually start writing in that? My final year of college, this would have been in 91, 92. I sold, and I suppose I could put sold in quotes because some might view it this way, a kind of cyberpunkish short story to a zine called Gateways. And this was a pay and copy zine, which means that you were paid with a copy of the zine. And uh, that gave me just enough encouragement that I began to pursue it with pretty ferocious dedication. And so can you kind of walk us up and t tell me a little bit about how you got from that point as an undergraduate at Virginia Tech to where we are today, sitting on your couch here in Vermont. The publications that I was able to land after I graduated from Virginia Tech uh, ended up laying enough groundwork that I was able to apply to and get accepted into the Hollins University creative writing program. The very final thing I wrote at Hollins became the kernel of what was my first professionally published story, a science fiction story called Stolen Souls. Fast forwarding to a year after I graduated from Hollins, I took on my first editing project. But that project was an anthology called New Dominions, Fantasy Stories by Virginia Writers. And it's one where I paid in copy to the people who participated because that was still a somewhat acceptable thing then for a zine. Just to skip ahead again, my experience with New Dominions is what laid the groundwork for me to start the zine Mythic Delirium. That zine created a platform where I ended up actually working with the likes of Ursula K. Le Guin, Neil Gaiman, uh, Joe Haldeman, uh, Ian Watson, Jane Yolen, and a number of writers who were just kind of starting out as I was starting out who have gone on to become huge in the field, like Catherine M. Valenti or, or Ken Liu. They had pieces appear in Mythic Delirium. I began also publishing books by some of the authors that I worked with. And that is what I still do now. I'm curious as to, you know, what you see when you look at Appalachia. What's it look like from your perspective in the sci-fi fantasy horror world? So here's an interesting thing for me. Roanoke is unique in that there and some of it, I think, actually goes back to, you know, Nelson Bond having been based here, who was extremely active in the 1930s and 40s and 50s in the magazine scene that existed at that time. And uh, writers like Shirley McCrum, you're kind of making Roanoke, or at least the Roanoke region, their home base. Roanoke has this very robust culture for celebrating its writers, regardless of, of what they write. Those of us who are based here, like myself, or Rod Belcher, who writes under the name R.S. Belcher, 
or uh, Amanda McGee, who's an up-and-coming writer whose work is definitely Appalachian uh, and, you know, has a bit of witchery in, involved. Uh, you know, we've experienced uh, the benefit of that. There's no way for me to kind of sweepingly talk about, like, everybody with an Appalachian connection, but there are, there are some I do want to mention. Nathan Ballingrud, who lives in Asheville, is a horror writer who's had uh, some really high-profile things happen lately. Uh, his first short story collection, North American Lake Monsters, was adapted into the Hulu series Monsterland. The title story in that book he considers to be an, an Appalachian story. You know, I mentioned Rod Belcher, uh, whose novels, you know, Nightwise, Brotherhood of the Wheel, King of the Road, you know, have uh, events in West Virginia and the Carolinas. Manly Way Wellman might be the classic Golden Age writer who's, who's most associated with the Appalachians. He has a series of stories about John the Balladeer or Silver John who is a, a gentleman who has a guitar strung with silver strings. He kind of wanders through this magical realist version of the Appalachian Mountains and has encounters that are very much based on Appalachian folklore. Other writers I wanted to mention, Barbara Hancock, who writes under Willow Reese, lives in Ferrum, and uh, Sherry Priest, who lives out on the West Coast, but whose debut, uh, Four and Twenty Blackbirds, uh, was based in Chattanooga when she lived there, and she wrote a whole trilogy based in the folklore of that region. She may be best known for the novel Bone Shaker, which was a novel that combined zombies with steampunk. You know, kind of hit like at the perfect time to do that and was a pretty big hit. For people who are interested in, who are listening to the Button Bin excerpt, and are like, oh, I'd like to hear more about that, what's the entry point into your work that you'd recommend for them? I am, I don't know that I would call myself a straight-up horror writer, but whatever I write, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or, you know, mystery or what have you, it always ends up with a really strong horror element. And I have two collections of short stories. Uh, one is called Unseeming, and one is called Aftermath of an Industrial Accident. And they both contain a lot of stories that are very explicitly set in Appalachia in Southwest Virginia, the button bin being one of those stories. That was Mike Allen, writer, editor, and publisher of Mythic Delirium Books. Find a transcript of our interview with links at our website, wvpublic.org. Spooky stories can be about people, but sometimes they're just about a place. A patch of land or an old building can develop a reputation that grows and grows over the years. Some are off the beaten path but others you can drive right up to. In Mingo County, West Virginia, there's an old single-lane railroad tunnel that's become a local legend. Back in 2018, reporter Molly Bourne ventured inside the Dingus Tunnel to find out what makes it so unsettling. Shortly after I moved to southern West Virginia, I started hearing about the Dingus Tunnel. It's an old railroad tunnel, one of the longest in the state at nearly two-thirds of a mile long cut through the mountain. It was built in 1892 for a stretch of what was then the Norfolk and Western Railway, and it became the main line until 1904. The town of Dingus was a pretty hop in place back then, but when the railroad changed its route, the train stopped using the tunnel altogether. So in 1913, it opened vehicle traffic with just one narrow lane. Legend has it the place is haunted. Not everyone believes that, but most people can agree on one thing. It's pretty scary.
The road to Dingus, like most in this part of the state, unwinds like a ribbon. There's little to no cell service, and the tunnel kind of comes up on you quick. There's a sign indicating something is a quarter mile ahead, but that part of the sign saying what exactly is no longer there. Then there it is. The entrance is black, except for maybe the eyes of headlights. It can be a hot summer day outside, bone dry, but it's often wet inside the tunnel, apparently from leaks in the ceiling. The lights haven't worked in a while, so it's dark, really dark. There's an etiquette to driving through this tunnel, according to locals. First you stop, you turn on your headlights, you check for other headlights, and if you see them, let the car pass. It makes sense, except when you can't see because of fog, or you encounter someone who doesn't know or doesn't care about the rules. If you meet another car in the middle of the tunnel, one of you has to back out. In April, I drove through the tunnel for the first time with my friends Teresa and Judy, both longtime Mingo residents. I recorded us on the voice memo function of my phone, so the audio quality is a little sketchy. This is far out. This is... I really hate it. Oh my god, it's so creepy. I really You're way far back. Somebody could pull in behind that gun. Don't make her go faster. It's scary no, enough as it is. I'll put my brights on. Good. Yeah, that's better. Oh, that's far less scary. What I'm really afraid of is not the tunnel, but the dark. Hey, why is you have brights on? You have yours on? Why, yeah, but I know, but he's... Don't run into the side of the tunnel. We're I'm worrying not, about I'm your... Not, I'm not fine. You're, <laughs> you're freaking me out, Teresa. <laughs> Three people were killed in a train collision in the tunnel in 1905, according to an entry in the West Virginia Encyclopedia. In 1972, writer Huey Perry published his memoir on the war on poverty in Appalachia called The Cut Off Your Project, and he described the tunnel as a violent ambush spot. There are some wilder stories that have been passed down over the years. Here's historian Stan Baumgartner. The trains were robbed. You know, people were killed. It's hard to say how much of, of, the, of some of this is, is urban legend and how much of it is truth. The tunnel itself developed kind of a, a reputation, and it's made it the, the, just the nature of it, uh, of how dark and damp it is, uh, makes it even scarier. Two years ago, a crew of Mingo County residents set out to investigate paranormal activity in the tunnel for this quirky local public access TV show called Relate with Nate. For the two-part Dingus Tunnel episode, host Nate Siggers brought in a group that includes Sabrina the Mountain Medium and Brad Davis, a former local newspaper writer who's also a pastor. What's up, guys? Welcome to uh, another episode of Relate with Nate. You know it's close to Halloween time. Ooh. So we found the spookiest place in Mingo County, the Dingus Tunnel. Yes, I'm in Dingus. It is true. <laughs> so, Sabrina, have you have been through the tunnel? Yes, and I've had a personal experience, and so has my son coming through the tunnel. Coming through from the other end, uh, maybe five foot in, we both witnessed a gentleman step out of the wall and straight back in. This is maybe a couple years ago. Um, very thin, bald, no shirt, um, baggy brown pants, rope belt. Um, just a few seconds worth, but he was there. Ooh, I got chills. <laughs> Davis wrote a story. And yeah, he wrote, they saw some stuff. Flickering lights, weird shadows. There was even an unexplained train sound. But one person who's not scared of the tunnel is Bob Wellman. He's 82. He's not a fan of Huey Perry's book, which he says is full of tall tales about his family and the place he was born and raised. Wellman estimates he's been through the tunnel at least 500 times. He played inside it as a kid. It was cool in the summertime. Cows would lay in that tunnel. And if you went through her in a car, you'd have to get out and run the cows up. Wellman also used to get up to no good in there. He and others burned tires inside the tunnel on Halloween, filling it up with smoke. A few years ago, he met someone he said was being aggressive in the tunnel, and they wouldn't back up. He went around it and ripped the guy's mirror off. Then there was that night in the 1950s when he was coming home from a date in his 48 Chrysler. He broke down inside the tunnel for 45 minutes. Ran out of gas in about 12, 1 o'clock in the night. I, I, I just said in there that somebody could come my way. And they stopped, and I waved one up, and they pushed me out to this side, you know. But as far as being scary, I don't think it's scary. 
Never did. He wasn't helped by ghostly forces, just someone passing through. Still, even after hearing from Wellman, I find driving through the tunnel harrowing. Wellman says his wife hates it too, and she and others go up over the hill and down a windy back road to avoid passing through. Maybe I'll take that route next time. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Molly Bourne in Dingus. That was reporter Molly Bourne back in 2018. Molly's career has taken off since that story aired, particularly in film. Most recently, she served as co-producer of the documentary King Cole, which is currently being screened at theaters and film festivals around the country. I interviewed Molly and director Elaine McMillian Sheldon a few months back. Check that out on our website wvpublic.org. Coming up, what do you do when you think you're living with a ghost? To this day, I still don't know what it is. It's not human. We know that. And it's not aggressive. So it was just something we learned to live with. That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. Some people are afraid of ghosts. Others want to figure out ways to communicate with them. Like Anita Allen, a writer and paranormal investigator in Roanoke. She told me about a couple of her encounters with ghosts. We moved here in 71. And then when I was in first grade, something moved into my parents' house. To this day, I still don't know what it is. It's not human. We know that. And it's not aggressive. So it was just something we learned to live with. My sister and I named him Larry. And trying to figure out what Larry was basically is what got me into research. My mom's response to pretty much any question of why was, there's a book, look it up. And we had the Encyclopedia Britannica in the same room that the ghost lived in. So if you wanted to figure out what the ghost was, you had to sit in the basement with the encyclopedia and try to figure it out. And it took me a little bit to realize that science didn't know and didn't have the answer for what that was. Do you, does your family still have that house, or yep. has it passed out? Really? No, he's still there. He's got a friend there, too, that he doesn't like. Um, my dad brought a haunted item home back from uh, visiting relatives back in the old country, and something was attached to it, and it was a, a mask, and our dog spent four solid hours barking at that thing. He hated it. And uh, after that... On uh, new moons, there is something down in the basement that nobody likes. Can you describe maybe a particular case that comes to mind? I mean, this house was haunted. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, When we moved in, the gentleman that lived here was actually killed by a hit and run right out front here by the mailbox. And his cat came with the house. And from growing up, dealing with my ghost, I'm very comfortable communicating with ghosts. I don't have a problem with it. It's kind of second nature. So I knew there was a ghost here, and I was a little concerned about that. I was hoping he would leave as soon as we moved in, but he made it very clear we were welcome. I I did all the things you do to let him know you're moving in. And um, basically the reason he was staying was his cat. He wanted to make sure that she was okay. And so he stayed on for about 10 years until she passed. And the day she passed, he was gone with her. So he was just making sure she got across. So it wasn't a bad situation. It was a a good, there's a lot of good hauntings, a lot of good stories of people living with ghosts. And 
Mr. Schrader Bowen was definitely one of them. He helped us out a lot with learning how to deal with a 100-year-old house and lots of little quirks. He'd draw the attention to it and help us understand this was a problem and get it fixed. That was Roanoke writer and paranormal investigator Anita Allen. Now, haunted places dot Appalachia. Moonlit hollers, mist-shrouded cemeteries, and dusty buildings that hold unspoken secrets. Playwright and theater director Dan Cady knows just such a place in Charleston, West Virginia. I don't like to tell about the supernatural experiences that happened in the town where I live because eventually strangers start showing up with apps on their cell phones trying to prove me a liar. Still, there is this one warehouse. Back when I was trying to make a legitimate living, I owned a small printing business for which I rented the second floor of an ancient warehouse in a not-so-fashionable part of town. Twenty feet from the back door was the railroad track, and at certain times of the day and night, the iron beasts rumbled by, shaking the floors and the shelves and deafening all who were inside the building. Okay, now, this was a spooky place to begin with. Ancient brick walls, worn, unfinished plank flooring. Huge beams stretching across the ceiling. This wasn't one of those places that anyone would ever rebuild into fashionable lofts for the rich and famous. This was just a dusty 100-year-old warehouse. But it was big. 200 feet long and 50 feet wide big. And like old buildings are wont to do, especially old buildings by the tracks, it made noises of its own. So we all get spooked now and then anyway, whether it's at home during a thunderstorm or closing up the shop at the mall or an old building in the dark part of town. It's part of a long lost survival instinct we inherited from some hairy ancestor from the plains of Ethiopia on his way to discovering fire. Only it wasn't the warehouse itself that spooked us. It was what was in the warehouse and I have no doubt still is. Now, I never made money in that printing business, but it took five years and a major fire to convince me that I never would. At the height of my incompetence, I had half a dozen employees, mostly college kids working the presses or artwork or prep, all in various stations throughout the space. It started off as a joke, really. He was the guy who always was looking over your shoulder or just left the room right before you looked up. The guy who we'd blame when we couldn't find the box that was right there a minute ago. Or who moved the chairs around in the middle of the night so when we came in the next morning we'd fall over them. Yeah, that guy. The other guy. Hector. For no particular reason we called him Hector. For a while nobody really saw Hector. Hector was one of those spirits whose presence everybody felt, but no one could exactly figure out how. He was just there, and at times at least fairly harmless, and at other times a real pain in the butt. After a few years of losing money, the business started heading south, and most of my employees moved on, leaving one last college kid due to leave for school the next week, and I to do all of the rest of the work such as it was. It was the last of summer, on that one early September night every year when the first cold front of autumn blows in. The first dry leaves of the poplar trees scatter across the parking lot and everything changes. It was dark. The old windows were rattling and we were rushing to finish an order and get home. Hector had been busy all that day, especially upstairs on the vacant third floor where he seemed to pace from one end of the building to the other. Oh yeah, First time anyone ever heard Hector pace, they ran out of the building. Really, I know I did. I didn't come back until I had someone else with me for protection. Long steps. Sometimes slow, sometimes stomping, sometimes running. Come on, a hundred-year-old building and disembodied footsteps marching above your head? You'd run too. So Hector had been busy all day moving around watching us. He seemed different that day, though. I don't know why, maybe angry or sad. Thinking about it now, he may have had a thing for my assistant, 
She was leaving. Maybe that's what was making him so sad. Whatever it was, he seemed more haunting than usual. Outside, the wind had just picked up, and the branches of the trees that had grown up beside the building were beginning to scrape along the windows. It was late, dark. We really wanted to go home. My assistant was sitting at her work table facing the door to the office and the rest of the warehouse when he suddenly appeared. And I mean, really appeared. Know that saying, you look like you've seen a ghost? <laughs> well, yeah. I had my back to her when she cried out, and I turned. And there he was, standing in the open doorway, not five feet away, looking at her and then at me, back and forth. Back and forth. Outside, the wind blew harder, and the sound of the cold rain pelting against the windows was all I heard as we stood, all three of us motionless, staring at each other, waiting. He wasn't a tall man, maybe 5'9 or 5'10, and thin but muscular somehow. He wore his hair short and had on a dark jacket and deep brown pants that seemed dusty around his knees as if he'd been recently kneeling on the floor. His shoes were old and cracked and well-worn. He looked at us from deep-set eyes, his face dominated by a hawkish nose and colored by the dark shadows of a day or two's growth of beard. He seemed in his late thirties, maybe younger. He was sad, dark, dark circles beneath his eyes, and he was tired with a weariness that all three of us seemed to understand. Do you see him? I whispered. My assistant only nodded as we fell again into silence. Now what do we do? A few long moments later, he put his hands in his pockets and turned his head slightly as if he too were puzzled by what he saw. Was I really seeing this, both of us? Were we really seeing the same thing, the ghost of a man standing in the doorway three feet away? What do we do now? What do we do? Finally, slowly, very slowly, I took a few steps to the doorway and, reaching up with one hand, outlined the figure standing there. There was a coolness around him now, like the coolness of a breeze on my wet hands after washing the car. Is this what you see? I whispered. She nodded, still unspeaking. It was only then that I realized that the figure I had outlined, the man who was still looking at me, was only partially solid, although against the black background of the darkened office and warehouse, he'd appeared complete. The coolness around him that I'd first felt when I'd run my hand around his perimeter seemed to be growing outward as he glanced back at me directly into my eyes. I took a step backward. I feel I should say something, I whispered to my assistant, but as I turned to speak, a gust of wind against the window suddenly shattered the silence. He looked at us one last time, curiously, but still with that overwhelming sadness, and, and backed away into the dark and then turned and silently disappeared into the shadows of the warehouse. Neither one of us spoke as we left that night, getting into our separate cars and driving away. What was left to say, you know? For months afterward, he was quiet, even though I'd speak to him from time to time in the cold winter months when I was working there alone. Oh, the train still roared by, and... Buildings still made sounds, of course, but after our encounter that night, they just didn't seem as spooky anymore. Then, one night the following spring, the place caught fire, and with it, my print shop. As my wife and I stood outside the place in the middle of the night, watching the firefighters try to quell the flames that by then were leaping high above the building, I saw him one last time staring at me from the second-story window. The same sad loneliness in his eyes. The building still stands. The damage from the fire was fixed years ago, but as far as I know, there's never been another tenant. 
Oh, I do drive by every now and then, slow down, glance up, the off chance that he might be looking back at me, but he never has. This time of year especially, I still think of him, up there in that old warehouse, staring out that window, all alone. That story was recorded by West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Jim Lang in 2021. Thanks again to Jim and Dan for sharing that with us. Scott Worley oversees Haunted Beckley in Beckley, West Virginia, where he spent most of his life. He collects stories and gives history and ghost tours. This next story isn't exactly about ghosts, but the people who commune with them. We're talking about spiritualism, a religious practice centered on the idea that people can communicate with the dead and even seek advice through seances. Spiritualism has gone in and out of style for generations. In the 1800s, though, it became a mainstream trend that attracted celebrities like Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. Worley tells us about what spiritualism looked like in West Virginia during that time. Our history here with spiritualism goes back to the very beginning of the spiritualist movement. You know, most people think that that occurred mainly centered in Upper New York State. But very shortly after the, the movement took hold is a, a group of the spiritualists came to Western Virginia and they decided to build their own community here. And we're talking 1850. They built the community of Mountain Cove in Fayette County. The community was a planned city. It had a, a wall around it, actually. It had... Um, laid out uh, with neat little rows of houses. They had their own little, you know, meeting houses. They had a form of government, uh, like a town council. They started their own newspaper. They had one of the first newspapers in southern West Virginia. I said they practiced spiritualism. They thought that there were ways to contact folks who were dead. And they lasted for a few years. Then, of course, the Civil War comes along. That's when spiritualism just really took off in every major city. There were studios where you could go and either have a spirit photograph made with see if your loved one was there. They were really preying on the widows and family of Civil War soldiers that had not returned home. In a lot of cases, you didn't know if your loved one was dead, captured, or just decided not to come home. What had happened is the folks at Mountain Cove had disseminated out, had gone out into communities, but maybe living up a hollow somewhere. So that's where you would get somebody talking about, you know, the lady up the hollow can see things. So they would have folks coming from miles around to see their loved ones or see their future. The period that really strikes me happened in the early 1900s because there were several very well-known mediums, spiritualists, practicing in West Virginia. They would take ads out in newspapers. And there was one particular Mrs. Elizabeth Blake, who was from the Huntington area. She traveled by rail. She would go to different cities and she would take ads out in the paper. Mrs. Blake is going to be at such and such house, maybe in Hilltop or Scarborough, Oak Hill, Beckley, Lewisburg. And she would gather folks around taking donations to help them to uh, see or communicate with their loved ones. Now, This is a time, particularly in the southern coal fields, where a lot of widows from coal mine accidents. There was a near riot in Hilltop because so many people came out to see Mrs. Blake. And she claimed, I I can only read six people a day, so these people have to disperse. Well, they wouldn't disperse. They were just milling around. They actually called the constable in to disperse the crowd. But with Mrs. Blake, one of my favorite tales with her is in 1909, right outside of Beckley, the Hood family was going off to church. Mrs. Hood had already passed along, but George Hood and his sons and daughters, had gone off to church on a Sunday. The family came home. The oldest son decided to go off with his girlfriend and go to a picnic. And when he came home in the evening, as he approaches the home out in Mount Tabor, he sees the flames shooting up. And he gets there, and the house is almost totally destroyed. By the time the local fire brigade can get there, the house is pretty much gone. So they start sifting through, looking for the remains of the folks that were there, the Hood family. And they found them. But what they found were not folks that had died in a fire. They had been murdered. The two girls were missing their heads. Well, Mrs. Blake comes forward and she tells authorities in Huntington, I know who committed this murder because it was written up in newspapers all over the region. And so Mrs. Blake details facts of the crime that nobody had been shared with, positions where the bodies were, and her theory of who committed the murder. So they started investigating that. A lot of the things that she had said about a feud with the folks over business and such, they found to be true, but they did not able to gather enough evidence to actually 
prosecute anybody based on her reading of the crime. But she claimed the shade or the ghost of George Hood came to her and gave her all these details to help solve the crime. That was Scott Worley. The Hood family murders remain unsolved to this day. growing number of farms are turning themselves into Halloween destinations with corn mazes and pumpkin patches. Roxy Todd and All Things Considered host Craig Wright explored a few of these farms in western Virginia. Roxy, my afternoon began at Jeter Farm near Bonsack. This farm was started in 1853. Ned Jeter explains that his grandparents started this annual festival years ago. My grandmother just did it as a pumpkin patch. Schools came up. They like seeing kids. Aboard a trailer being towed by a tractor, I'm sharing my ride toward the pumpkin patch with Josh and his grandparents. Look, the pumpkin patch. It's it's a big pumpkin patch. Can you guess how many are there? No. At the tractor ride drop-off, visitors are greeted with a chance to fire an air cannon. And Roxy? Yes, Craig? Hope loud noises don't scare you. I'm ready. Whoa! I know. For a buck a shot, the cannon will fire apples or small pumpkins hundreds of feet across a pond. My visit eventually leads to the pumpkin patch. You're holding a great big pumpkin. Did you pick this one out? Yeah. What is your name? Esther. And what are you going to do with it when you get it home? Uh, carve it. Are you going to be funny uh, design or do you think it's scary design? Probably going to be a scary one. And Roxy, you went out to a pumpkin patch in the New River Valley. Yeah, Sinkland Farms. I talked with a family that was picking out their pumpkins. Here's Sarah Coleman. We have been coming here for over 10 years as a family. It's family tradition now. And we always have to go out in the pumpkin patch and get our big pumpkins. So like at the pumpkin patch you went to, Craig, Sinkland has this trailer that takes you up to their pumpkin patch. It reminded me of kind of like going to a Christmas tree farm and getting to cut your own tree. So by the time I went with my family to pick out our pumpkin, the sun was setting, so the sky had this pink glow that was just lovely over the purple and yellow sunflower fields. That was my personal favorite part. My daughter decided the pigs were her favorite. Adorable tiny pigs. They do races a couple times a day. So tiny. I've never seen a pig so tiny. They are tiny, aren't they? What do you think of them? They're cute. I met a girl named Adeline who was looking at the pigs. What is your favorite part of this farm so far? Have you just been to the pigs or anything else? Um, I've been here a couple years, and I like the playground. They do have a huge playground. I talked with the owner of the farm, Susan Sink. I think that today, uh, all ages of individuals are looking for more than just a transaction. They're looking for an experience. She and her husband ran a dairy farm here for years, and they had a pumpkin festival just as a way to earn a little extra income. When he passed away in 2007, she decided to turn the farm into an event center. I didn't really know anything at all about the commercial dairy business, but I do know how to throw a party. They also have a corn maze, and Craig, I understand you also went inside one of these. Yeah, Lehman Family Farms in Mottville. Highlights there included fresh kettle corn, zip lines, and the Beal Mine Slide. But the real attraction is their massive corn maze. I think this one's eight acres. Shannon Dunn explains how the maze design is cut into the cornfield. Whatever design that we choose, they GPS it out for us, and then we start cutting. Armed with my microphone and a QR code that provides a diagram of the maze, I met up with a group who ended up as lost as I was. How you doing? Good, good, you. How long have you been in this corn maze? Yeah, it's been a while. You're trying to find your way out now? Yeah. I'm happy to report that thanks to our young guide, I did make it out. All in all, it's wholesome family fun. In Montvale, I'm Craig Wright. And in Christiansburg, I'm Roxy Todd. James Fromel is an actor and storyteller in Morgantown, West Virginia. He's also an occasional contributor, providing readings of short stories by Appalachian authors. For the Halloween season, he sent us a pair of tales from Ruth Ann Music. Return of the Headless Man One day, as the men were trying to clear a certain area of timber in the backwoods of Barber County, a worker got too close to a circular saw 
He saw his danger too late, and before he could move, the blade tore into his neck. Blood flew everywhere, spraying the surrounding trees and ground with a red blanket. The man's head dropped to the ground like a coconut from a tree. His body whirled three times and then fell against a hollow log. No one could move, because everyone was stunned by the accident. After the men finally recovered from the shock, they made arrangements to have the mangled body removed to a funeral home. It was several months before the memory of the accident faded from their minds. One night, in the quiet logging camp, as a night watchman made the rounds, checking the equipment and watching for thieves, he saw the figure of a man standing in the exact spot of the accident. Caught by surprise, he froze for a few minutes. As soon as he had recovered sufficiently, he started walking toward the figure. He was shocked to see the same person that had been killed a few months before. Just then, the figure disappeared, and the watchman turned and ran to town to report the headless man's return. Night after night, the same thing would happen. One night, the watchman shot the figure to see if it would stop him, but it didn't. The man would just vanish into the night. Then, about a month later, a forest fire burned down all the woods, including the logging camp. So the loggers moved on to another location. Just for curiosity, the loggers came back to see if the man was still there. He wasn't. The general opinion of the woodsmen was that the dead man had gotten his revenge. And now, he was happy. The Murdered Girl from Coffin Hollow by Ruth Ann Music. Many years ago, a wealthy Connecticut man had a brother who lived on Point Mountain in Webster County, West Virginia. The wealthy man's daughter was stricken by the dreaded disease called consumption, and he wrote his brother asking if she could come to the West Virginia farm to spend a month or two, for the doctor had said that a change of climate might cure her. The brother agreed to take her, and preparations for the visit were made. When the girl arrived, she paid $1,500 in advance for her room, board, and expenses. Later, her father sent her $2,000 more, which she gave to her uncle to keep for her. He decided to kill her and leave with her money. After the murder, he buried her under the hearthstone of the fireplace. He then took her money and went west. The house was haunted after this happened, and the door wouldn't stay shut. Occupants even tried bolting it, but to no avail. No one would live there any length of time. Two old Christian ladies who lived nearby told the man who owned the house that if he would put a bed in the room where the ghost was and get wood enough to burn all night, they would come and sleep in the bed, and when the ghost appeared, they would ask it what it wanted. The owner prepared the room as they suggested. That night, they were lying there talking when the door opened and a young girl walked in. She put her hands behind her back and turned around, facing the old women. They raised up on their elbows and asked what she wanted. She said, I was a rich man's daughter. My uncle killed me for my money and buried me under this hearthstone. If you look, you'll find me. The next morning they told the neighbor, who lifted the hearthstone and found her body. They called the authorities, who got out a warrant for the uncle's arrest brought him back from the west, and hanged him on a tree near where he had killed the girl. The Return of the Headless Man and the Murdered Girl were collected and retold by Ruth Ann Music. They're available in the story collections The Telltale Lilac Bush and Coffin Hollow, respectively. We close out today's show with a seasonal song. Charleston, West Virginia's Red Sovine was a country singer from the 1950s through the 70s. He was a contemporary of Hank Williams and replaced him on the radio show The Louisiana Hayride when Williams went on to the Grand Ole Opry. Sovine sang a lot of songs related to truckers, including this one, Phantom 309, which is kind of a ghost story. We hope you enjoy it. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. I was out on the West Coast 
trying to make a buck and things didn't work out I was down on my luck got tired of roaming and bumming around so I started thumbing back east toward my hometown made a lot of miles the first two days and I figured I'd be home in a week if my luck held out this way but the third night I got stranded way out of town at a cold lonely crossroads rain was pouring down I was hungry and freezing, done caught a chill When the lights of a big semi topped the hill Lord, I sure was glad to hear them air brakes come on And I climbed in that cab where I knew it'd be warm At the wheel sat a big man, he weighed about 210 He stuck out his hand and said with a grin Big Joe's the name, I told him mine And he said the name of my rig is Phantom 309. Well, I asked him why he called his rig such a name. He said, son, this old Mac can put them all to shame. There ain't a driver or a rig running any line that's seen nothing but taillights from Phantom 309. Well, we rode and talked the better part of the night when the lights of a truck stop came in sight. He said, I'm sorry, son, this is as far as you go, because I got to make a turn just on up the road. Well, he tossed me a dime as he pulled her in low and said, have yourself a hot cup on old Big Joe. When Joe and his rig roared out in the night, in nothing flat, he was clean out of sight. Well, I went inside and ordered me a cup, told the waiter Big Joe was setting me up. Oh, you could have heard a pin drop. It got deathly quiet, and the waiter's face turned kind of white. Well, did I say something wrong? I said with a halfway grin. He said, no, this happens every now and then. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week is provided by The Animals, Amy LeVere, Jason Isbell, Jerry Milnes, Southern Culture on the Skids, and Red Sovine. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.